All right, guys, look, we know what this is. It's my pre-show pitch to try to convert more free first-hour listeners to full two-hour-plus show subscribers. And this is a format I've been using for 10 years now, so I realize that most people who see the value have already pulled the trigger on it, but now I'm trying to get deep down into those hard-to-reach places, and I guess that's you. Now, what can I say that hasn't been said? There's only a few ways a podcast works. The big one is ads. They suck. They ruin the flow of the show. And in a lot of cases, they erode the trust and respect I have for hosts that go this route. They shouldn't be promoting boner pills and hair pills or encouraging a fast track through the therapy pipeline just because they're getting paid. I've seen nutritionalists break down some of these ingredients in the athletic health powders and drinks and surprise, they're not as good as they claim to be. I bought a razor my favorite podcaster said would be Nick Proof, nicked myself the first day. I got sucked into a foam mattress from a guy who said he's never slept better and I haven't slept good since. And that Irish titles thing everyone was selling turned out to be a complete scam too. But enough about how my colleagues' mouths are for sale to whoever asks, I'm here to put you in this Plus membership today. Five shows a month for eight bucks with a decade-long archive. And yes, the first hour is important. It's there to present our guests to the wide counterculture, open-minded audience we've cultivated, and it gives people a feel for if they like what THC is, as well as being the proof of concept that I can do a lot more with the added time. The second hour is so I can make a living, and it's also an opportunity to get into the stuff your standard one-hour shows can't. Asking guests about that obscure, provocative quote from their book that I actually read, talking about previous work they might have done, getting their thoughts on some odd subject outside of their latest material, or maybe even talking about something too spicy to be out there in the open. And that should appeal to anyone who enjoys the first hour. And when you become a Plus member, these full episodes are all there in a single two-hour file, no switching back and forth or downloading two separate halves of the same interview. It's very nice to have it that way going forward. And if you want to go back, unlike most podcast archives that are just a big chronological list, the HiresideChats.com has categories and scrolling displays much like the big streaming services. And it's all optimized for mobile, and you can even download the files for offline listening. Find some old ones you liked and refresh your memory by starting at the beginning or jump in about 50 minutes to hear everything that would be new to you. I'm even going to be pulling one free plus show a month out of the archive and into the free feed to give you an even better sense of what you miss. The on-site comment section is pretty lively and the rating system is there to let me know the shows plus people like best. You also get lifetime access to the forum and access to a bonus page of exclusive interviews I've done here and there, bonus content from other shows that I was on videos from the few live podcasts I've done, and the MP3s of all the THC closing cover songs I've had made. But that's not all, folks. Plus members also get a discount code for THC merch. A lot of great artwork of aliens, summoning rituals, hollow earth maps, and a wide range of wild stuff put on shirts, coffee mugs, pillows, yada yada yada. But it's the ongoing full interviews people want, and it's convenience that they need. Well, I know 90% of listeners are in a podcasting app right now. So at the top of the show notes, there are the signup links. The form is quick and easy and THC Plus has an RSS feed like any other show and it can be used with all the big podcasting apps too. I've got support documents and real non-bot people to help you if you need it. But it's been made as easy as it can be and you get a seven day free trial to make sure I'm right. At least meet me there. I also have a Patreon link at the top of the show notes, which I don't love. I'd rather not have a middleman between us when we could be dancing cheek to cheek, but they are a Spotify partner, and a lot of people choose Spotify to listen to THC. So I wanted to make sure they could use it for Plus also, while they let us. 
The show notes also give you my P.O. box for cash, checks, or business-to-business bartering, as well as all the crypto addresses, because anything is better than nothing. And I want the Plus shows to be heard any way they can be. Just offer me some kind of exchange, you know? This is the job I work at. And I use this example a lot, but a waiter gets an $8 tip for walking the most forgettable meal of your life from the kitchen to the table, and you don't get anything extra for your $8 either. If what I do here isn't at least worth that, is it even worth your time? Hey, I don't like doing this part of the job, but I owe it to my family now to suck it up and make my case while I can, because who knows how long this can last. I'm not some Hollywood millionaire trying to appear genuine through a focus-grouped podcasting venture cycling through all the other celebrities in the agency. I'm just a regular guy who had to make myself valuable when the working world didn't think I had anything to offer. And I hope the first free hour proves that the full experience is worth the price. If we don't like the ad revenue-based world we're living in, then we have to support people who dare to do it a different way, who provide us something interesting, entertaining, and hopefully useful. Outside of that, I just ask that you support the guests who resonate with you, or at least let them know you appreciated what you heard. And that's it. We can get on with the show. And we'll let the rest of the podcasting world pretend there's no better way to do it than disingenuously hyping up any product that cuts them a check while we do our own thing. Meet me on the plus side. The water's fine. And enjoy. Masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man But until you've thoroughly tested every last close trusted view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do Serenity now, higher side chatters from the Sunshine State. I'm Greg Carlwood, and as we navigate the choppy waters of the vast conspiracy, all sorts of questions arise about the deeper nature of reality and what a human life in it even is. Are we ignorantly meandering through a system of routine cataclysmic catastrophes of which we are kept ignorant while the parasitic elite build underground bunkers in their hopes to rule what remains in future rounds of rebuilding? Have reptilian puppet masters hijacked a system of universal karmic law to collectively drag down the rest of us with forced participation via retirement investments, taxes, and a manufacturing base built on human rights abuses? Might a mind control signal from Saturn be creating a frequency prison from which we cannot recognize our true selves? Or are alien greys compromising the human soul, tricking us with light tunnels and trying to extract our genetics to build their own biological demon bodies? When you start asking the big questions, very quickly a personal, fundamental framing of reality and what is even possible in it comes into play. Many folks say they want answers to these curious mysteries, but lack a well-thought-out model for consciousness, dream time, non-physical reality, quantum mechanics, and all the other important contextual insights under life's hood. 
the things we need to get a handle on for the out there stuff to fit within. And lucky for us, today we're talking to Daniel Rekshan, a guy who has studied all these things academically, philosophically, and practically through a psychonautic exploration of the depths of what his own mind and consciousness are capable of. He's the founder of dseti.org, a research organization that explores the ET slash non-human intelligence search and study through DREAM. And he's a trained hypnotist and dream counselor. He is also an important founding member of the team behind the DreamWell app, helping people sleep and dream better. And as you do, he explored John Dee's Enochian magic and performed all that is involved in the Enochian apocalypse working, which resulted in his book Liber Lux Galactica, aka the Book of Galactic Light, a collaboration between Daniel and celestial beings he communicated with throughout the process. But that's not all. Most recently, he's written another book in collaboration with non-human intelligences reaching out to help humanity better understand our place in the vast multidimensional soup of consciousness titled Missing Time Found, Don't Worry, It's Just a Dream, a new and old hypothesis regarding ET and UFO-associated missing time. Whew, he's got some really interesting insights into how all these things connect, and it's going to be really fun to get into. Here he is. The Enochian apocalypse ritual worker, the dream insight extractor, and earthly buddy to celestial beings, Daniel, welcome to the higher side. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. So I learned about your work from a voicemail you left for the joint sessions when I was still doing that. And then I had to reschedule and it got all lost in the chaos of moving across the country. And then you wrote your next book with the beans and reached out again. And this time I didn't leave you hanging. So I have to apologize for that. But I am really glad that we waited because Missing Time Found is a super interesting book. And I don't think I was ready to unpack it six months ago like I am today. I might have dismissed a connection between dream and non-human intelligences as some kind of cope from people who don't want to wrestle with the reality of high strangeness encounters or want to frame these things as somehow less real through that sort of conclusion. But what you are saying with this book is much more fascinating than that. How would you describe the overall pitch to Missing Time Found or the working hypothesis behind it? Thank you. So that's a big question. And I do want to just set this up a little bit by referencing some of your interviews with Diana Pasolka and some of the other researchers in the field, there is this movement towards this understanding that things can be real and something else. So Diana Pasolka talked about it being both real and imaginary understood as a almost religious experience in her book, American Cosmic. I'm saying that these experiences can be both dreams and real at the same time. And the biggest framing that I bring to this is an awareness of a cultural bias that Western mainstream culture has called the monophasic bias, meaning we only care about one phase of consciousness. Other cultures care about multiple phases of consciousness, and they don't have as big of an issue going, hey, there's something in my dream that's real, but dreamlike. And so having that basic understanding that something can be dreamlike and real, meaning it impacts our daily life, there probably is ontologically distinct, these dream characters coming to us telling us things. But us saying it's dreamlike for the last 100 years, 300 years in Western culture, we go, oh, that means it's an illusion. Therefore, I have to throw it away. And so I am saying that we can say, yes, indeed, ET contact is dreamlike. And we know this from studies people have done. The biggest studies in 
Western culture around this say, hey, alien abductees are schizotypal, meaning they're having dreamlike experiences. They're absorbing themselves into their fantasy prone. And I say, yes, all of that science is true. And yet dreams are also true. And look at all these miraculous things other dreaming cultures have done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first interview I did with Diana, she ended it saying something about the grand realization is that when you watch a movie, your brain interprets everything as it's actually happening in front of you. And I was like, that's a weird, unexpected thing to say. But yeah, that's what she's getting at is the imaginal or things that are presented to us still are interpreted as real. But just because they're interpreted as real, I guess, doesn't necessarily make them real. That's kind of the sticking point for me, where if these things are real, like, I guess we have to get fundamental and define realness. But where do these things emerge or how do we identify a character in a dream or something we encounter in the dream reality that is real versus something that is a manifestation or just some kind of thing? I mean, is there even a difference? It's a really good question. I turned to Tibetan dream practices to really look at that. The Tibetan book of sleeping and dreaming gives a kind of classification. And this is a sort of classic way of looking at dreams from cultures that really honor dreams. They say, hey, there are some dreams that are little and some dreams that are big. And that distinction, Carl Jung talked about that, as well as Michael Harner in the shamanic understanding of dreams is there's little dreams, there's big dreams. Little dreams are like the wish fulfillment dreams. They're the anxiety dreams where your teeth are falling out. The big dreams are like the life-changing dreams, the precognitive dreams, the bilocation dreams, the alien abduction dreams or whatever. And so these cultures have a more rich system of identifying and discerning, is this my personally relevant dream, but not relevant to the culture? Or is this actually relevant to the culture? People who practice dream work, people who do this over time, have an understanding and it's a personal, it's personal understanding to say, hey, this is real or this is just personally meaningful, but not necessarily real to the culture. And I think a lot about the dream interpreters of old, you know, thinking back to the book of Daniel, right? It's like these dream interpreters would go into these foreign lands and interpret for politicians and kings what their dreams meant. They got it wrong, they would die. Right? They would be sewn to death. And so they have a skill that is not a science, but it's an art that can be activated and accurate. So we have to look to, I would say, actually, the reason why I'm doing this work is because our culture seems to need a different set of tools to address this question. Is it real? Is it a dream? I will also say this is a thing I'm wrestling with personally. So one of the experiences I share in missing time found is my own journey with missing time. My own experience of going, I had missing time. I don't know what it is. I'm seeing a hypnotist to figure that out. It seems dreamlike to me. And yet my twin brother remembered it in a way where I was able to write down the experience, ask him about it 20 years later, and him confirm that to me. And also there's a sequence of synchronicities around it, which means that there is a level of reality that extends beyond my persona, so it's transpersonal, and therefore I would say is real, with the caveat that any dream experience that comes to us does come through the lens of personal experience. So that's why screen memories sometimes riff on science fiction, right? So our experience of aliens 
sort of looks like science fiction, perhaps not because they're unreal, but perhaps because we're perceiving them through the lens of our personal imagination, primarily and then secondarily through the transpersonal kind of greater reality experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you are onto something because with so many high strangeness experiences, it does involve a shift in consciousness. It does involve a trance state of some kind. And we all know dreams are a thing that happens, like very bizarre experiences that we think are absolutely real until we wake up. So if we don't have that waking up trigger, imagine that you're just in the most bizarre dream ever. You're not questioning why your pets are having their heads on human bodies and you're in some kind of weird mafia. That's a dream I had when I was young. Like you don't question it until you wake up and you say, oh yeah, that is completely insane and ludicrous. Why would I think that? So you could almost say the same thing about life. Maybe death is that awakening trigger in a different sense that we're like, oh my God, that was all kind of a hallucination. But we it just feels real because you're in it. And this is a really interesting thing when it comes to ET and that whole experience. I've heard you say in previous interviews when talking about the fact that so much of that is derived from hypnotic regression, that you know, it's a bigger piece than people realize. Like we all know it's in the mix, but the idea of gray aliens coming in a spaceship and extracting our genetic material, that narrative, the shape of that is really strongly influenced by the 90s and this hypnotic regression thing. So you have asked, what if all the researchers who were doing that and holding a negative view of ET, like David Jacobs, what if they're unknowingly shamans? It might have the side effect of greys stealing our genetics at night. They might have manifested their nightmares through working with thousands of people and a potent dynamic of holding a singular view of these things might be transformative to the world. I like that pretty big statement. Elaborate on what you're saying there, because that is a pretty unconventional approach to this work, but it is interesting. Yeah, it is unconventional, but I would say actually it's an experimental method and almost scientific. And your listeners can participate in that experiment if they like by imagining different scenarios and knowing that they are perhaps powerful dream shaman in themselves, capable of mediating their own relationships with the non-human intelligence world directly and not indirectly through the mediating factors of these cultural lenses of negative abduction. So setting that aside and turning back to that childlike imagination and thinking about these experiences may actually shift the experiences your listeners have. And so that's the fundamental message I have, but I want to talk a little bit about this sense of David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins being these shaman. I believe it was Bud Hopkins' third wife, Carol Rainey, she did documentaries for PBS. She wrote a very interesting piece called The Priests of High Strangeness, who really called out all of the unethical, poor research practices of Hopkins and Jacobs. I would recommend anyone reading that article, but it says, hey, these guys look like priests of high strangeness. And so that sort of confirmed to me some of the suspicions that the non-dual state between the hypnotist and the hypnotee isn't just about recovering false memories. It might be retroactively or retrocausally doing something. And 
I say that because my own personal experiences, some of the things I do with dream work, actually, I have these precognitive dreams. And then two or three weeks later, I go, this is the event. It's like a movie, a time loop movie where I'm like, oh, I have to do the thing that I dreamed of. And then it'll, I'll make it true. And it was absolutely true, but it was all me all along. And so in that way, I'm suggesting that perhaps the linearity of time is not as firm as we suspect, that shamanic people in general and everyone's shamanic have the capacity to step outside of time. And when we talk about dream shamanism, there are precedents of things like dream apportations, meaning things coming from the dream world into this physical waking world, entity encounters, all these strange things, bilocations and all sorts of fascinating things. And so the final bit I would put on the table around the hypnosis being dream shamanism is that the current president of the International Association of the Study of Dreams wrote her dissertation on how hypnosis actually is dreamlike. So it, you can use hypnosis to produce dream states. And that research is pretty consistent. The research that says hypnosis recovers memory is very against recovered memory. And so I have to say it's dreamlike. And therefore, I look to and say, okay, they're doing something like dream shamanism. What if it actually does have an impact? And the way we, we would test that would be looking at the ideas Hopkins and Jacobs put forward, questioning them and saying, hey, there's some flexibility in there. And then inviting anyone who's considering this to inject their own imagination as to what happens or their desires even. you know, Personally, I have a desire to move away from the slave states or whatever, the media circus into a more truth and love-based society. So that's what I'm doing with my works here. And when I work with people, especially in the missing time regression state, oftentimes we will inject imagination of love, of light, and not go like, hey, what actually happened? But how can we heal from this? How can we bring insight into this situation? And so that's what I'd invite anyone who's considering this to do is just bring that connection to their own heart and to the earth into that whole contemplation of what's happening. Mm -hmm. Well, that is another thing I like about you a lot that you don't just sit and wonder, oh, I, you know, just intellectualize these things. You just explore them. You know, we'll talk about the Enochian thing later, but I mean, how many times have I talked about that through the years and just thought, hmm, I wonder if there's something to it. Well, just sit down and do the damn ritual if you want to know. And so often we don't. And I think part of that is time. And part of that is a calculation, perhaps, that I don't want my life wrecked. And that seems to be what people associate with going down a magical path. What do you think about that? The idea that this stuff is dangerous. I mean, clearly you don't necessarily really think that, but when people get mad at me about my criticisms of Christianity, a lot of it comes from this exact crossroads where they just put everything that's non-Christian in a big box and say it's evil. Well, what are your thoughts about exploring these things, particularly magic, I guess, and the idea that it's dangerous or will wreck your life or that it's evil? Thank you. So I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian church, evangelical. It was fire and brimstone. I <laughs> uh, I remember going, oh my God, I'm going to hell actually because of my experiences. I think a demon is attacking me at night and it's taking me to hell. So I have that cultural training and conditioning and 
What brought me out of it actually was art and creativity and landscape painting. I looked to the work of Wassily Kandinsky, famous modern artist who did abstract expressionism. He wrote a book called Concerning the Spiritual in Art. He says the role of the artist is to go further than anyone has gone in the realms of spiritual spirituality and have an experience and bring it back and share it with people. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. So I won't just go out to the forest and field and paint. I'll go inside and see what's there. And the way I did that was through what terrified me the most, which at the time was tarot cards. Because <laughs> those, <are, laughs> those are like gateway drugs to demon possession. And I still can't read them very well. And I remember sitting with them and I would draw a few cards and imagine what the interior situation would be like to correspond with those cards. And my heart would be pounding when I did that. The same thing happened when I did the Enochian rituals. I felt extremely called to do it. But one of the reasons why I took it so seriously was seven years before the Enochian rituals, I went to London and I looked at the magic mirror of John Dee and all of his things. And then I came back and I had a mysterious blood infection in my arm that my doctor, John Constantine, told me in the middle, of, he, he first was like, oh, it's okay, dude, you're fine. You got tennis album. Then he called me like six times in the night, was like, you're going to die. Go to the hospital. I went to the hospital and they start cutting it open and they found ancient infected blood. And the time in the clock kept going 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12. And the doctor was just like, this is so weird. I had no idea what this is for. And then I was like, what is this? Am I going to die? What's going on? And they're like, you're not going to die. You might get these again. We have no idea. I was like, okay, I kind of get this is a spiritual sickness. I picked up some ancient infected blood. I've heard you talk about this before, and I just wanted to focus on the word ancient. Why do you say that? Because the doctor said that. The doctor was like, this just looks like old infected blood. I use the word ancient, I don't know, perhaps because of my poetic imagination, but that's how she described it. She was expecting pus, and it just looked like an old black scabby thing in the middle of my arm, which she did not have any explanation as to how it got there at that point. Well, super interesting for sure. And I guess you are just the Bob Ross of high strangeness. I'm going to use that now. But let's talk a little bit more about mapping the imaginal. I love the idea of retro causality, just the idea that these people could have inadvertently been doing shamanism and shamanic works and thus manifested the gray phenomenon into waking life. I mean, that's just a really great way to think about this. But when we are looking at the imaginal, are you thinking there's like an ecology there where there are some things that actually have autonomous life within that garden bed? And then there are other things that are visualizations of our own. We all know the classic thing. Hey, think about a pink elephant. And now everybody listening can't shake that image for a brief moment. They're thinking about that. Well, that's insignificant. But now what if we dreamt of a pink elephant that was speaking to us through geometry and the kind of other things that you write about? How do we differentiate between personally derived manifestation and something separate and autonomous? And I guess, is there a scale in this imaginal world in which we can kind of have some kind of roadmap to think about the things we might encounter on the imaginal plane? Absolutely. So personally, I understand that there are things out there in the world but that they generally act for me through my own personal sensitivities in the dream world, through my personal imagination. So anytime I encounter something, I go, how am I imagining 
its form in what is this more formless aspect. So there's a truth out there that is more formless, and I provide some of this form. The literature I look to, so I'm in a PhD program at the California Institute for Human Sciences in the Integral Noetic Sciences program. This is in Encinitas, which was close to San Diego. It's an anomalous studies concentration, and it's the program director is Dr. Sean Esborn Hargens. He did a lot of work with Ken Wilber in integral theory and things like that, which is all about bringing together multiple perspectives. So Dr. Sean, he put in the academic books, like we're going to study UFOs and cryptids in this program. And it's like one of the only accredited programs that has that. And I jumped on it as soon as I found that out because his work surveyed all the literature basically and says, when you apply this sort of integral theory activity of list making and bringing together perspectives, there does seem to be multiple different lines or spectrums of reality, ontology. Like there's things like talupas or like chalupa. I don't know how you say that. Talpas. Talpas. Thank you. And then there's like actually like physical beings that I personally believe that some people I've talked to has have physical encounters where these grays actually took things from them physically, truly, medically, in a very real way. But also there's like this aura of high strangeness, like you were saying, this dreamlike stuff. So there's a spectrum. And the reason why I advocate for the ethics and epistemology of dreams, as opposed to like forensic investigation here, is because we seem to be interpreting it through personal lenses, primarily. I mean, I can point to the work of Jacques Vallée to support that, or these different experiences. Ray Hernandez talks about that, who's a big guy in terms of doing quantitative research with experiencers. He was personally set on that journey because he had an experience and his wife had an experience of a light being or something, and they saw different things, but like their dog was healed. So it really happened. So this is sort of the kind of questioning I'm going on and trying to figure that out. Right. That's what's most interesting to me is when there are real world effects for some of these things. But yes, clearly the personal interpretation is important. It's a classic thing that we see these high strangers experiences and they present themselves as something religious or a mechanical ship. And then Jacques Vallée would say, oh, well, there's a presentation there, which that makes me think about some plasma being that interacts with our own consciousness and presents itself in a way that we are not afraid of or are really afraid of, depending on the state it wants us to be in. So I still think about some real thing behind that presentation. But when it gets into the dreamlike nature of these things, that's also really accurate because you'll have people who say, well, the grays abducted me. And then I said, in Jesus name, get out of here and put me back. And they do. And those people are like, oh, well, clearly there are demons and Christianity is true. It's like, no, that's maybe that's something you did in your dream like situation like you would in any dream. I could dream that I was a priest of a made up religion and have real things or things that seem real respond to those protocols like that happens. And then the range of cryptids. I've just read so many books about encounters and they are incredibly bizarre from giant worms to little electric raccoons. And it's like these are not individual things, clearly. Like, it does fit in the context of dreaming and the bizarre creative range of things that people would experience. 
where it gets weird. Like we can talk about real things on the imaginal plane that we could encounter, but where it gets really strange is imaginal things on the physical plane. Now it works if we say that reality is an onion of dreamlike states and we're just in the one that we think is real right now because we haven't had that awakening trigger. And maybe that is the sandbox context for how this happens, but talk to us about that aspect of things. Real physical effects of what we're now kind of saying are imaginal beings. Yes, thanks. So to give context, my first missing time case is Dan Berg. And the reason why I bring it up is because he has the most documentation I have seen of a missing time event, right? He was a cameraman in Rob Freeman, the UFO World Explorers crew, and they went down to the Atacama Desert with Ricardo Gonzalez and Paula Harris, who was valet secretary or some research assistant, something like that, now investigative journalist. So it's like big names are there doing a thing and they received automatic writing, predicted the event. A number of people in the Rama network said, a cameraman's going to be taken. He's going to have an experience. Ricardo was like, oh, Avika is not Avika, which is the name of the ET that visits him or something like that. He said, Avika is not going to visit me. It's somebody else. So Dan was filmed going out into the desert, being called telepathically, filmed coming back 40 minutes later with a wild story about trees lighting up and telepathic messages. And then at the same time, they're filming the sky in a what I believe is a geosynchronous satellite, actually, but was a blinking light sort of substantiated that sighting event or whatever. So I go, that's a real thing happening. Those synchronicities are wild. And we'll talk a little bit more about another geosynchronous satellite dance saw filled with amazing synchronicity. I still can't believe how meaningful this geosynchronous satellite was, but it is a geosynchronous satellite. So I hypothesize that the NHIs or ETs move that synchronicity to happen. But I wanted to talk about that because all of the cases, if we actually look into abduction cases or gray alien cases, and we look for the evidences, it's a very interesting journey because the evidences do not support the stories in the way that legal forensic testimony supports historical physical events. So something else is happening. And just to kind of conclude that line of thinking is part of my own inquiry here is asking the question, how much is real and how much is personal? When I've asked that question, my own dream characters, sometimes who take the form of tall gray aliens, have said, well, here's some body marks. Uh, here's some geometry to understand it. This should be proof to you. Figure it out. And today I just completed the manuscripts and cover for a new book. It's called Galathog the Gray's Field Guide to Anomalous Geometry. And it goes through it has about 100 figures of geometry that I've collected from the public internet from people body mark experiences. So this is the set of data that Hopkins and Jacobs look to to say, hey, this looks physical to me. People are telling me these dreamlike stories. We don't have physical evidences of the craft, but we actually see marks upon the body that seem medical in nature that are unexplained and associated with these dreamlike encounters. So I've actually looked at that evidence and considered it my own dream connections with tall grays, have said, look at that evidence. You'll figure out what's real and what's dreamlike when you look at that. 
And they've marked my body. And I actually have to put forward, interestingly, the hypothesis that it was a psychosomatic interaction, that my body created the mark upon the template that was provided to me by an ontologically distinct entity. So this is something like a stigmata where an angel that's outside of the experiencer comes into the field, does something, and it's so impactful that the physical body reacts. But it's not like alien scalpels cutting open the skin. And that looking at the evidence is put forward by the abduction researchers that is the source of the physical hypothesis of alien abduction, I must conclude that their evidence supports a psychosomatic body mark phenomena as opposed to a medical artifact body mark phenomena. Mm -hmm. That's an important distinction. And in previous interviews, I've heard you say we should stop fetishizing 3D reality. Like this isn't the only thing going on. And it's not like this is real and everything else is fake. It's kind of a continuum. And sometimes there's bleed over. And that is to me, what's most interesting is the bleed over. Like you mentioned body marks. What about implants or physical hyper objects or metamaterials that are apparently worked on? Do you think this idea of reverse engineering a craft is faulty or could that still be true? But the craft came from the imaginal. People talk about these beings, like you say, you got geometry. Sometimes these beings apparently give things that are mechanical or physical and the person can either try to work it out or maybe it makes its way to the invisible college deep state somewhere. But what are your thoughts on that? Real physical objects arriving, I shouldn't even say real, but physical objects arriving in the layer of reality we interpret as real and them being physical from a place that was non-physical. I'm still in the mix of thinking around that. There's a couple of thoughts I have. I want to connect the geometry to dream telepathy to metamaterials by way of Hal Putoff and Kit Green, who are, you know, deep state metamaterial people. I will believe metamaterials when I see metamaterials and experts don't need to explain to me that they're metamaterials I'm seeing, right? So this is what I'll say. I mean, so I actually believe that they do have metamaterials. I believe that there are recovered craft, and I believe that's not the point. I believe them talking about that is a manipulation and sort of a ritual thing. And I think that it misses the point. I say, yes, the, I mean, the way that my experience has explained it to me, and I'm still sort of fleshing this out in terms of an academic argument, is that the dreaming mind can open portals, and those portals are imaginal. And a thing, a physical thing, can enter into that world and exit into that our world like a UFO craft, but it is covered in a sort of film. Like, you know, those, I don't know if you've seen those YouTube videos of people like, adding those swirl patterns to helmets and different plastic objects by dipping them in vats of water with this sort of image printed on top. Mm -hmm. They're fascinating YouTube, satisfying videos or whatever. But the thing is, the object goes from air to water and there's a film on the water that has an image that then is applied to the object as it moves through the medium. I say that something like that happens and the craft that enter into our realm it's sort of coated with a sheath of, I don't know, psychic material from the collective unconscious, the imaginal or something, and that it 
sort of creates an expiry date or a trickster quality to it. So this is sort of like, I would interpret these as gifts from a fairy kingdom, right? You don't eat food in the fairylands. Like you're careful when you bring back gold because when you spend it, it will become coal. But before you spend it, it's actually gold. And you can look at it and share that with your family. That's what the fairy lore really tells us. And I would suspect that something similar is happening with the recovered craft. (laughs) I love it. I really do. I think we're pretty deep down the rabbit hole at this point. So I recently interviewed a guy named Tom Kenyon, whose journey started with a random Sumati experience when he was 18 on his uncle's farm. And it involved missing time. And when he snapped back to reality, hours had passed and there were cows standing right in front of him. And he found that interesting because he had a contact experience with a deity that was associated with cows. And this is an example of this thing that happens a lot. Not exactly a physical object coming from the other side, but we'll have an encounter with a entity that has a history associated with it of other people seeing it. And it has associations with something like cows or a cat or something. And this happened to you, I understand, where you had a being that you were connected with and you said, show me who you are. And I guess take it from there. Apparently this being was associated with ducks and water. So the whole animal embodiment thing is fascinating. And I, I want to relate that to dream shamanism, but I do want to share my personal experiences too. So that whole experience, I was in a month long meditation retreat in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition. And I kept experiencing psychic intuitions and things like that and communication. And I was like, okay, who is this? Who is this being with me? And it sort of said, at this point, I was thinking it's a fairy creature, a nature spirit. In Shambhala Buddhist tradition, we have a thing called a drala. So these are like nature spirits or elves or something like that. And it's not like we believe that they exist in the woods or something like that. There's sort of a, an imaginal kind of back and forth. So I was thinking it was that. I said, who are you? It guided me intuitively to go to the library, open a book, and I saw Rahula, who was a raffle deity in Buddhism that is said to come from the edge of the galaxy, converted to Buddhism because he liked Buddhism, decided to stay in the earth system to be a protector. It was associated with a duck through water, that transmedium sort of air to water experience. The association there was the sport coat I was wearing was filled with ducks. It was like a corduroy coat that had ducks on it, basically. So that was my experience. My twin brother actually had in our missing time in 2002 or so, saw a dog witch uh, at the boundary of the other space and this space. And that was um, a connecting point between the case that my client came to me that triggered my remembrance of our missing time event. They also had a strange dog in the experience. So there is a prevalence of animals associated with these highly strange states. And the thing I would say, the academic insight I would bring to this is that animal embodiment, as well as control of the dream space, are characteristics known of dream shamanism. So we know that dream shamans can control the dream state, they can interpret it, they can discern from big and little dreams, and they can also embody animals. That's like a weird thing to add to this list of dream things, 
But that's what the scholars say, that they can embody animals. So I have to think that perhaps there is some level of animal embodiment happening in those stories where strange animals appear, that perhaps they're not just screen memories, that perhaps they're actual animals somehow embodying the consciousness of that entity that's visiting. Yeah. And this is another thing I really like about your approach to all this is you kind of say, well, let's get all the reports. Let's go to the strangest of strange places and let's assume what they're saying is true. And then let's find a model that can incorporate that rather than saying this is our model and your experience doesn't fit within it. So you must just be crazy. I mean, you are not afraid to look at the wildest stuff and then be like, well, how would I fit that into a model? And it just seems like dream shamanism is that model. So let me ask you about what happens when someone goes to Peru and does ayahuasca. I just had Gordon White here, a staple of THC, and he talked about seeing the shaman embody the jaguar, that obviously you're on these entheogens, but he just could see in the movement of the man, like the mechanisms of jaguar, like he was embodying it. And if the shaman can control the dream, when these people go into trance and they meet Mother Ayahuasca, which is presented as a giant snake, which, you know, maybe that's front loading what the experience is supposed to look like, because you've heard this before. But usually they're given profound insights about their own life. And that's kind of the thing, like my 40th birthday is coming up. I'm like, man, I want to do that deep work while I still have time left on the planet. I don't want to do it at 80. What's the point? So. I guess I would ask you what you think is happening in those experiences in the dream shamanism model. Oh, yeah. So I have participated in ayahuasca and experienced some things. And in my personal experience, the first time I got done with it, I was like, oh, my God, this allowed me to stay conscious through the dream cycle. That was the thing I came back from. I saw Jesus. I saw Trungpa Rinpoche came and visited. I lost the ability to conceptualize time. But I also came back from that and I said, this is what we do every single night and we just don't remember it. And so that's the kind of personal conviction I would say around that. Again, it's a sort of shamanic, we would have to apply shamanic framework to understand what's happening in the ayahuasca experience. And that's somewhat not troubling, complex in this day and age, because we as Westerners, as English speaking Westerners, are not connected to shamanism in the way that someone who naturally would have ayahuasca in their lives are connected to shamanism. So the experience is somewhat different for us because we don't know how to necessarily relate with that. That's one of the reasons why I look to Dr. Jean D's work, because I actually say he is a shaman. Our shamanic activity was not eradicated 2,000 years ago. It was eradicated maybe 300 years ago, or I'm not sure where it's at sort of thing. So that's what I would say regarding ayahuasca. Fair. Well, what about a person's ability to increase the frequency of the overlap between the dream world and the physical, whether it's experiencing beings and then seeing the things they're associated with in waking life, like that kind of synchronicity or extracting some kind of thing from that realm to this one, like the orb John D apparently got, or one of these metamaterials. If I wanted to just validate this theory of dream shamanism, 
how would I test it? How would you suggest that I really increase the potency of that overlap, increase the amount of dream experiences or dream beings that influence my waking life? If I just think that would be fun to experience. Yes, that's a wonderful question. So first and foremost, every Western scholar I have read that has looked into dream shamanism says everyone's universally capable of accessing this space. So that's the first thing I'll say is like, if you're not accessing this space, something's off. And generally it's a concept. And I would track that back to a couple of things, but that is around our capacity to engage with our own imagination. And so one of the experiences I have as a hypnotist is people will say, okay, I'm ready to be hypnotized. I want to find out what happens. And then we'll start doing the trance and we'll start talking about the contents of the experience. And then they'll go, hang on a second. I'm not in trance. My eyes aren't rolled back in my head and I'm still conscious. And this feels like I'm making it up. And at that point, I have to go, okay, that's fine. This is how imaginal things speak to us is through the imagination. And so the capacity to set aside the rational judging mind, is this real, is this not? Is this real, is this not? We have to set that aside in order to engage in imagination, which may or may not be a bigger little dream type thing, may or may not deal with ontologically distinct individuals or entities, but it is our imagination and that's really meaningful. So I would say to start practicing this is really ground into the knowledge that as a human, it is your birthright. It is our legacy. It is the wealth that is extracted from us by the deep state or whatever, our connection to that imagination. And so really claiming that is a lifetime journey. I think I'm on it. I'm still discovering how insidious some of those things that prevent us from imagining are. And then I would say just increasing dream recall dream practices are the best way to explore this. When you work with dreams, you'll end up working with the stranger aspects. And there is an intelligence, which is your intelligence, determining what comes into your experience. And so the best ways to do that are mindfulness. I say, I say the best ways are mindfulness and just remembering your dreams. This is why I, so I have a sort of two-phase approach to everything. One is this highly esoteric anomalous study stuff, which is missing time, body marks, UFO. And the other is the Dreamwell app, which is my twin brother goes like, let's make it secular, mainstream. He's been a data analyst for apps. It's like, you cannot talk about wild stuff like we are here. And so that app is really designed to make all of these insights around how to dream well, how to be present, how to be mindful. And they're very, very simple. You don't need to use the app. You can do Any other app, do mindfulness, plus pay attention to your dreams. The universe will guide you to that. If you want to, your listeners, check out the app DreamWell. Learn how we suggest working with mindfulness and general awareness with your dreams. And then just simply express the intention for the kind of shamanic aspects, this highly strange stuff to start happening, and it will. Yeah, I think that's a really great point because so often on this show, we're talking about really epic things. And then I say, well, I want this. I want this to bleed over into my life. What should I do? And oftentimes the advice is way less epic. It's really like asking intention, 
I mean, even the phenomenon of lucid dreaming, it's like, well, how do I have more lucid dreams? People say, well, go around and every time you pass under a doorway, knock on it and be mindful and say, is this a dream or is this real? And eventually you will do that with muscle memory in an actual dream state and be like, oh, it is a dream. And then you will take off into a lucid dream. So a lot of time it is just asking or having the intention. Like I could say I want metamaterial to appear on my desk from the dream world, but how often have I really sat there and meditated on it and like try n- never, you know? So it's kind of weird to be like, well, here's how you do these epic things, but then they just don't get done. And yeah, you could think of almost like an analogy, like our consciousness is a TV tuned to C-SPAN when there's all these other channels right there, way more exciting channels than the mundane C-SPAN. But we're just like, no, this is the real channel. And these other channels are not real. And it's just like our Western perception. But I was thinking about all these concepts from your book and the phenomenon of body dysmorphia. Like there's a subreddit for body dysmorphia that I cross on my feed sometimes. And people will say, do I have big ears or am I fat? And they're very much not. Their ears are very normal or they're not fat at all. And it's like, yeah, we can have these perceptions of ourselves that are absolutely wrong. Or when people talk about doing magic to look better physically, sometimes people interpret that as, well, you just did a spell to affect the way other people look at you rather than physically changing yourself. You just kind of like tweaked the way you're perceived into like, now you're an eight instead of a six on the scale. And so I think that is interesting, like body dysmorphia as a way to look at general perceptions and the fact that what is real is the perception real or is the physical ears on your physical body real or are they both not real? You know, and like, is it just the way people see your ears because of the way you have obsessed about them or something like that? What do you think? Yeah. uh, (laughs) So this ties into a little bit of the dream telepathy geometry and reality questions. So one of the things I look at with the Anakian magic and the ET contact experience, we go, how is this actually real? I recently had the understanding that perhaps we're not moving towards the disclosure of these vast craft or whatever. But I go, what if the phenomena has been the phenomena all the way along? We've got records of it and it's not going to be any different than what we see. And then I go, where are the records of actual encounters with humans and non-human intelligences? Well, it's with the mathematicians, the artists, the politicians, the people who create history and the artifacts of history testify that they engage with non-human intelligences like things in their dreamscapes, even Descartes, Einstein, Niel Bohr, all these scientists, they're like, the dreams happen, the beings happen, and then they see the world differently. So this is where the dysmorphia comes in. They're, they're going, I can make sense of this world differently. And that was my own experience looking at the world. And I, I go, maybe the magic was just the tweak of my geometric intuition subtly enough that I could start seeing this world differently. And just to conclude that loop with the literature and Kit Green and Hal Putoff and Metamaterials and Body Dysmorphia, <laughs> Dream Telepathy, there's a paper that was written by Michael Ibsen and another gentleman, I forget his name, that said, what if we do SETI except by telepathy and dream telepathy? How would we know it was real? 
They cite the example of Pat Price, the Project Stargate or whatever, and they go, okay, the way we would know this is real is if they could provide us mathematical insights beyond the capability of humans or at least the dreamer. And then we would know it's something else. And the reason why I say this is really interesting is there's a footnote in that paper that says, we have to thank Hal Putoff and Kit Green for their essential suggestions and contributions to the idea of this paper. And I'm like, what is Hal Putoff and Kit Green, who are associated with metamaterials, doing in the only peer-reviewed paper about telepathy and study? What's going on here? This happened 10 years ago. Like, Do they know something? What's going on there? <laughs> That's really interesting. I've heard you talk about that paper before, and it is worth being brought up. No one ever really talks about that, as far as I can tell. And it reminds me of that whole idea. So like you said, the idea of how would we know it was real? Well, it's very common with people who experience a lot of entities to say, do something in the physical so that I know that you are real and not just something in my imaginal realm. I've talked to occultists who have dialed up many different beings out of grimoires and stuff. And they say, with enough experience, you just stop messing with the small time stuff. Or you say, make a change in the physical world and they can't do it. But then you run into beings that can. Sometimes, like Tom Kenyon would say to this being, prove to me you're real. And then a little orb of light would show up and just go across you know, his field of vision. He'd be like, oh shit, well, clearly you are real then or something. It doesn't necessarily prove that if you could have done it yourself and it could be a manifestation that's just really, really powerful generated. And you're, you're changing reality yourself, basically, through the mechanism of a third party. But it is weird. I don't have a real criticism of CE5. I've heard you talk about this before. I have a criticism of Stephen Greer as a person, but CE5 does seem to be a thing. I don't find his branding of it to be all that special. It seems like what a lot of indigenous people do in natural outdoor settings all the time. But of it, you have said, look, there's geometry in the sky that responds to human intention. What more do you want for disclosure, world? And I just thought that was just well worded. I agree. Why wait for governments to give you their narrative and the evidence they are supposedly withholding when you can have these experiences yourself? I mean, absolutely. That's kind of where I'm at. And that's also one of the arguments they use, the CE5, Human Initiated Contact Experience. You know, that is much more than Greer, uh, if you track back where it comes from. The Rama Network was involved. He did participate, I believe, with that. So it did not happen in a vacuum. And you've accurately assessed where it's kind of coming from. So in this sense, it's like we can actually set forth intentions for contact and remember intentions. And then the world responds with fantastic beings and impossible physics, right? We see UFO craft that behave impossibly. And so the characteristic of fantastic beings, impossible physics, telepathy, and other things like that are dreamlike qualities. So I say it's these things must be real because we're experiencing them at some level in the waking state. Like the CE5 experience is really interesting because you go from waking into a shared ritual state without going to sleep or doing drugs. And then you see stuff. You actually see stuff. They're not satellites. There's something else is happening. And then beings sometimes show up telepathically and that kind of thing. Or physically. I don't know. I haven't actually. There's complexity there. There's complexity there. But that shows to me that this world itself is something like a dream. And if you were to practice reality checking or 
lucid dreamlike intentions here in this state, we would likely see the same kind of flexibility of reality we see in dream states, only perhaps shifted up an octave. Yeah, I like that. And so obviously we're getting near the end of the line and we'll do the promotional stuff that we do. But before that, do you think we covered most of the major concepts that are important to you across these two books and the general work you've done? Did we leave anything out? I think we did a, a really good job regarding the sense. I love this sense of simplicity in terms of the exploration where a lot of the things that we were talking about are complex, but we came to a point of coming to a sense of what can we do about this in our lives? Well, let's, let's just do something, which is connect with ourselves as dreamers and people who can imagine. And I think that's beautiful. Agreed. So I like to try to test things that never really works out. Sometimes I decide not to do it because I'm like, well, I don't want my life disrupted by entities or something. But, you know, with you, I feel way more comfortable. I mean, you just seem to go for it. You have this connection to these celestial beings. You've written two books with them, and I think you plan to do more work with them. I mean, you just you mentioned you have a third book in the works. I'm sure they had a hand in it, but can you ask them to reach out to me in my dream? I'll give it a shot. That's one of the that's one of the things dream people talk about. I was like, I just saw I, I went to a dream conference last summer and people were like, they do that sort of thing. People are practiced at it. I'll give it a shot. We'll do an experiment. Yeah, try, because there's going to be like a, a week or so between recording this and it going up, which is, you know, at least seven to 10 nights of sleep. So maybe you can have them try to contact me. I mean, I read the names of some of them in the work, but I don't remember. It would be nice if there was something that came through like, hey, my name is this. And I'd be like, okay. And then I'll email you and be like, does this make sense? Does this jive? And you'd be like, yeah, that's exactly the, the entity or something. Or maybe they tell me some kind of information about your life that I don't have. And then I can give that to you and you can verify if that's true or not. You know, I tried this with Tom Kenyon and he was like, no, nothing came through. I'm like, well, all right, but let's try. Yeah. So dream telepathy is interesting. This is a dream telepathy experiment. It's important to know that the dreaming mind speaks through images that are correspondences. So this is going to be great training in practical magic from about 700 years ago and beyond. So working with correspondences and associations, I mean, sometimes they'll come in and be like, here's the facts that you want. And sometimes they'll come in and they'll give images that are in a completely different octave of experience, but like it's the same thing happening. Like for example, the example I gave with Rahula who was associated with the doc transmedium stuff that for me was confirmed through the inner lining of a sport coat I was wearing. So that is not verifiable objective proof, but for me, it was personally meaningful. So in that way, setting the expectation in terms of correspondences, yes, that's how it often speaks. And I'll, I'll do some ritual and stuff. I like that. Yeah. And I'll even try to think in those kind of symbolic terms, and I'll just try to have a lot of awareness of my surroundings. And if anything sticks out as weird, I'll bring it up. And it's a hard thing because, like, there are hawks that circle around all the time. And so that would seem mundane to me, but maybe 
the being you channel has to do with hawks. And so like, I might not make the connection, but I'll try to keep an eye out for things that seem a little unexpected in the environment and hope that something connects. Do you have any more advice on my side of what I should do to try to receive the message? Assuming this is like a game of telephone, you to them, them to me, all the connections have to work. So what should I do to be ready to receive a message? Yeah, so the best way to do that is to practice dreaming well. <laughs> you, you can download my app and learn how to remember your dreams by going through the first journey and then do the journal. And it's a little bit of a plug, but to be honest, like I've spent so much time with this app and I really do believe in it. And I say, this is how you can do that. The reason why I say that is because we oftentimes do not have the skill of recognizing a transpersonal dream when it happens. Even precognitive dreamers go, I had no idea it was precognitive until after the fact. So they develop the practice of recording their dreams and taking action on their dreams first. And then they get confirmation that some of their dreams are objectively prophecies or whatever. So in that way, my recommendation for you is to practice some mindfulness using whatever technique is meaningful to you to go into a receptive state. So this has to be meaningful to you. It's mindfulness. You can't really do it wrong. You can just use your imagination to be open, right? And then when you wake up over the next week or so, you can record your dreams and feelings upon waking. And then from that, there's enough information Generally, in my experience, you'll know it's a message. It may not be what we expect. When I ask for a verifiable proof or whatever, like you are doing now, they always trick me. That's how I ended up writing three books. I wanted some <laughs> simple answer. And they, they're still tricking me and it's still moving me forward. So when you open to that invitation, just know you're opening to that. And I sort of I've worked with clients in this way where I've invited them to have a dream or a message and generally 60 to 70% happens. I feel vulnerable in going into this experience of saying, yeah, I'll do this. And they feel vulnerable and silly and that's okay. And if nothing happens, that's okay. Because this world we're in is still magical and dreamlike. Yes. And the Dreamwell app. Clearly, I got to get it. Always be closing. You know, capitalism is the name of the game. You stuck the landing there. Daniel, I like it. But yes, Dreamwell, it's available on both cell phone services, operating systems, and people should get it. I mean, I've looked at the marketing for it, and it looks like a really well-made app. So I will do that, and hopefully some message comes through. I'll talk about it in the wrap-up. It will or it won't. But also tell people about the DSETI website, the books. Let's finish up with all the other plugs. Oh, wonderful. So yeah, the D-Study website, that stands for the Dream Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence or Dream Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence. It is dstudy.org. I put all of my research papers there, all of the books. Everything I do is offered by donation, generally after the fact, or if it's a digital download, you do it beforehand. I offer sessions based on shamanic dream work practices, the theories I've put forward. I am trained as a hypnotist. I use that model, but understood as dream work to offer missing time regression-like experiences. All that starts with you get to know some of my content. You go to the website. You can contact me via email or a consultation form. 
We set up a time to talk that's completely free and no donation expectation. We talk about your stories, we get into it. Then we might schedule a session to do that work. All of that information is dsteady.org. But once again, the Dreamwell app, we've spent the Christmas break sort of redoing the onboarding experience. So if you run into any hiccups or if it's not so super pretty yet, just know we're rolling out updates this week, next week. So things are changing because we really want to meet people where they're at and bring them into this very simple awareness that mindfulness, intentions, attitudes, and dream practices are really beneficial in this sort of universal way. And that's the thing I would really would love for your audience to do, even if they're very connected with the missing time notions or the book of galactic light is to really explore their own connection with their own dreaming life. That's the thing that I care most about because I can be wrong about UFOs. I can be wrong about Anakian magic, but I know that dreaming a little bit more will bring so much beauty into this world and we really need that. So that's the call to action I, I want to end with. So. <laughs> sure, sure. And also people can check out the books on the website and Amazon. That's important too. Absolutely. Yeah. dsetiorg slash books. I've got the books, Missing Time Found, Book of Galactic Light, and some other illustrated prose poems. They're on Amazon. Uh, so you can look for it there. Or if you don't like Amazon, they're just on the website, dsetiorg slash books. Love it. Well, I think you are onto something with the relationship between dream states and high strangeness. There's no doubt that many high strangeness experiences happen at night or when we are in bed or near our bed, in isolation, even driving, where these things tend to happen too, can be a trance-like experience. We call it highway hypnosis. Ding, ding, ding. You know, it's right there. So I like it. Is there anything else to say about what's next for you in this collaboration with Celestial Beings? What do they want you to do next, maybe even after this third book? This is very vulnerable to me or like makes me really nervous, but they really want me Good. to go. I know the book, Galathog the Gray's book to a field guide to anomalous geometry, 200 pages. That's where I'm directly working with Bud Hopkins' legacy, David Jacobs' legacy, and also the disinformation around UAP disclosure, right? I'm really taking that head on in my collaboration with these beings, I, I've, they've revealed to me how the mechanisms of so-called UAP disclosure in the mainstream circus is unfolding. In mm. part, that identification of a geosynchronous satellite that is now termed, is now the final set sighting of the UFO of God by Bledsoe, right? Like this is like major unfolding of this media circus. And it's really disheartened me to see the reaction of his team and the so-called government scientists around that, to not really take up this identification of that as a geosynchronous satellite. So for me, this ties with this whole legacy of Bigelow associated, this is conspiracy theory stuff, but I'm really going to take a lot of that around Hopkins, Leslie Kane, Bigelow, and just sort of look at it and then focus in on how we can transmute whatever's happening and cut through that to the dreaming experience. So again, meeting people where they're at because we are indoctrinated and we need to be led from that indoctrination to this more open kind of inquiry. And that's really what they want me to do. 
it makes me feel nervous actually just talking about it. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, it seems like they want you to be the Joker archetype of ufology and just burn it all down. That's right. All of our heroes and idols will be just torched at the feet of your third book, which I look forward to reading. But I'm glad we could do this. I again apologize for dropping the ball for such a long time, but it's even better because it just jives so well with recent interviews with Diana Pasolka and Tom Kenyon and Gary Lockman, which really wasn't that recent, but it was about dreams and has made me think about dreams as more important. And I have had a past life regression and it was very dreamlike. The only difference is like the ability to remember it because you're in a in-between state between dreaming and awake. And so, yeah, who knows how to make sense of this stuff, but dreaming is important. And given this timing, I'd say there's a lot of little THC synchronicities tying in threads of these people I just mentioned, but I guess a wizard is never late and appears exactly <laughs> when he's meant to. And you are some kind of dream wizard, but Thanks for taking the time and for doing the work. I hope we can do it again sometime, but take care out there. Yeah, thank you. You too. The dream wizard himself, people. And thanks Flophouse Jr. once again for that intro song. It felt the most dreamlike, so a good way to set the tone. How about it, though? I thought this was really interesting. Again, I've got to apologize to Daniel for keeping him on the back burner for so long. He followed up with me plenty, and I just kept putting it off. Obviously, I had a lot of life changes going on, and Daniel's not the only person who has been reaching out to tell me about their work, and we're still waiting for that show to manifest. But I'm really glad it came when it did, because his book, Missing Time Found, is really good, and he's just an interesting character in this space. When I listen to his arguments, it all just seems so simple and obvious. We've all heard a wide range of high strangeness encounters and abduction stories, and what are some of the big things we can say about them? Well, the range of beings that people encounter is so bizarre and diverse that they can't really be conventional animals or humanoids because the range is too great. Giant worms, mothmen, winged owlmen, reptilians, mantids, sea monsters. And of course, the ones that are more common, like little fairy people and the greys. But I think it's safe to say if this was some kind of invasion or just beings from a parallel reality, there would be a more consistent standard to what they are. In dreams, though, anything can manifest. It doesn't matter how weird it is. And missing time. Again, sleep is the biggest source of that, like he said. But what happens when we experience high trauma or something we can't deal with? We tend to black out or pass out. We always hear that these things happen at night or around our bed or at least in isolation. Night driving can be very trance-like. And really, now that we know the brain can produce... DMT in the pineal, all bets are off. Anything can happen at any time, really. So I think he's hovering right over the target. And if you listen to the second half with Gordon in January, he said the same thing. Shamanism is the model that can hold everything. Ufology is kind of still trying to hold on to materialism and not address the bigger questions about life and reality itself. What sort of reality can these things happen in? 
So I think the exciting way to think about it is that we've put so much emphasis on our wavelength as the real reality and everything else is somehow fake or less real. But like we said, every dream feels as real as anything until the trigger event of waking up. So until that point, we're very much under the impression it's all real. You hear yogis and shamans that say life is fundamentally God's dream. And yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it's that simple and it actually explains a lot. Our baseline reality is very persistent and convincing, but how could magic work in that reality? Even if manifestation and sigil magic barely moves the needle in terms of the law of attraction, barely is still something, and so it seems like this baseline reality is very thick, but it can be molded a small amount with magical techniques and prayer and that stuff we've discussed as scientifically tested in previous episodes. So if you stop resisting the idea that waking reality is just a more convincing dream, or one with a longer arc, then so many other things make sense, so I like it. In the Plus Show, we got into his other work, the Enochian work, the geometric communication with non-human intelligence, and we got into his work in the Smithsonian and the Architectural History Database. And a few other fun things. You know the drill. Become a member if you want to hear more. Also, Daniel and I have been in contact regarding some sort of dream contact on my end, but I never did get a solid hit. There was one day where I was picking up food for the family and I was actively thinking, hey, look out for signs. And as I walked through the parking lot, I actually ran into someone that I'd met before. And I know like a dozen people in Florida, so that's pretty rare already. But this guy has an interesting name, a rare name, and it did just feel very coincidental to run into him while actively looking for signs. But I can't say anything more than that really came through. Always worth trying, though. As for the last episode with Tom Kenyon, people seem to dig it. 4.8. That is what I like to see. I was surprised how many commenters were familiar with Tom already, but I think that's good. Anyone who was familiar with him said they got a lot of value from his insights and his channeling and have been a fan for a long time. And I knew it would be a bit out there for some people. And I know these two back-to-back are somewhat similar. But I guess I'm coming around to the conclusions that have been here the whole time. The Harptones told us life is but a dream in 1955. About time we listen, right? Also, I find it interesting that in Dave Chappelle's latest special, he referred to people who are living their best lives and accomplishing their goals as powerful dreamers. Maybe that's meant literally, and maybe there is more we can do to increase our dream potency. That would be the next step after just accepting this is the situation we're in. I also wanted to answer some questions about the YouTube channel and the video clips. So YouTube recently started allowing people to upload their podcast RSS feed entirely, and I thought, sure, I'll do it. Maybe a few new people will find THC this way. And that was a lapse of judgment. Huge mistake, because it just got me two strikes and a two-week timeout, and if I get another strike between now and April, I just lose the channel entirely. Shouldn't have done that, (laughs) but it is what it is. I'm back now, and I'm going to get the backlog of clips going out this week. 
not that big of a deal, but it is weird to say, hey, check out the video clips from these episodes and then not have any posted. It's not just me being lazy. They put me in timeout. Sorry. But that said, let's do the meetup calendar thing and call it in. Maybe you can tell I'm a little under the weather. I'm just in a difficult phase with these kids where the youngest one is teething and not sleeping through the night. And the other one is waking up at five. 30 every morning so <laughs> this too shall pass but many many sleep deprived nights in a row equals not feeling optimal <laughs> but as for the meetups we got on deck february 13th washington dc don't leave our man hanging nobody came last month when he tried to do this and we want him to have a successful meetup february 17th london at the monkey puzzle February 20th, Nashville, Tennessee, Monday Night Brewing. February 29th, Denver Gets Higher, Leap Year Edition. That's another somewhat recurring event. March 1st, Sequel, California. And March 8th, Columbus, Ohio. And we'll leave it there. But if you want more details about any of these, if you live near, hop on HiresideMeetups.com and RSVP for our hosts who have put themselves out there. Let them know what to expect. I should say I also got a few photos recently from two different successful meetups, and that was nice to see. But I guess that's it. I hope you forgive me for this wrap-up being a little short, but I also hope you guys are doing well out there. I know it's turbulent times, and I've been hearing some really sad stories lately from colleagues, from potential guests that had to cancel, from family, just all over the place. I'm hearing little sad stories and it just makes you appreciate life a little bit more if nothing really sad is happening for you. And I'm a very fortunate person to be doing this for my job. Big thanks to all the Plus members. And I hope this show, maybe not this in particular episode, but the whole and aggregate archive of THC helps you navigate reality better. Because that is the goal. If you're feeling lonely at all, we do have the meetup calendar as we just ran through those events, but that's a good way to remedy that situation. There is a loneliness epidemic, they say. But regardless, thank you for listening. Take care of you and yours. I'm getting out of here. Your move, dream weavers, reality script writers, and entities from the deep. Your fucking move. When you see weird lights outside of your door Something sits on your chest when you sleep It might be a pattern you've been through before mm -hmm. Or you might have those screen memories Darling, wait till we get some proof
So honey, now Don't walk into the skinny arms No, they came from the sky From out of the stars Play something on my beating heart I'm shouting out loud Baby, this damn life is too My memories fade But we know that it's not just a dream Cause they never put me back Exactly the same way The highest 